everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And hey, Naomi, I am Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. Today, I am thrilled to have us be joined by Christine Rosen. She is a good friend of mine and also a brilliant writer and scholar. She is a senior writer at Commentary and also the chair of the Colloquy on Knowledge, Technology, and Culture at the Institute for Advanced Studies at UVA. And she is the author, a couple of weeks ago, came out this great article called Will Parents Become Activists? And so we wanted to have her come on today and talk to us about the potential for a parent revolution, Ian. Yes, I love parent revolutions. I mean, Christine, you may know that I, I ran a network of public charter schools in the heart of New York City for the last decade. And one of the big issues we faced was that Bill de Blasio and all of his wisdom threatened essentially to kick public charter schools out of public school buildings. Heaven forbid, public school kids don't have access to public school buildings. But parents had been frustrated, but that was kind of the, that put them over the edge. And we were able to mobilize like 17,000 family members to march on the Brooklyn Bridge. And then a few months later, 11,000 family members went up to Albany in the bitter cold. But it worked. That forced legislation, new sources of facilities funding. So I'm wondering if, if what you're writing about now with critical race theory, school closures, all these, have we reached a tipping point where there is actually an opportunity for a parent revolution to actually happen? Yes. Well, first of all, Naomi, Ian, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I love the show. So it's a thrill to be on and to, and to well, I can see you, but to also hear you. And yes, I actually think what prompted me to write this piece was noticing how many parents People who would usually be perfectly happy just going about their business, doing what's best for their families, constantly coming up against a system that was supposed to work for them, but it somehow turned against them. And I'm talking about school boards. I'm talking about local legislators who were passing all kinds of emergency use restrictions that affected families' ability to use public space, to send their kids to school, public transportation. Add to that this kind of ideological push to get critical race theory into schools. All of this happening at the same time has brought together a really interesting amalgam of parents. These are not just conservative parents. There are a lot of liberal parents who, who really believe in public education who are just frustrated beyond belief. Many of them filed lawsuits in pretty liberal districts in the suburbs of New York, particularly in New Jersey, just to get their schools reopened and kids back in the classroom during the pandemic. So I think this perfect storm of conditions, many of which were outside everybody's control, the, the response to them by local, state and federal officials horrified a lot of parents. And they now are trying to figure out what they can do as an organized group to fix it. Do you worry that the momentum is going to be gone? I mean, now that most kids are back in schools now, I'm sure the critical race theory and other kind of educational horrors that are going on in schools makes a lot of parents mad. But probably nothing near as mad as just forcing their kids to stay home for 18 months. Do you worry that like now that things are sort of back to a semi-normal state that parents are just going to be like, oh, well, like, now I don't have time for this. I got to go back to work and I, I can't be part of this revolution anymore. You know, that is a concern because as we know, one of the, I mean, I joked with some friends and with my editor when I was working on this piece that the thing that would really kill this revolution is just the fact that parents are, are really tired, exhausted. They're working. They're trying to raise their kids. Having time to be an activist is a luxury for a lot of people. So I, I am a little worried about that, but I'll say this. The learning loss that, that parents can see with their own kids, the emotional and mental health struggles that a lot of kids are now 
really kind of coming to fruition after this year and a half of no school and the, all the, the troubles with the pandemic, that's still very real for a lot of families. And again, I think a lot of school systems are either ignoring that. You know, we've seen a movement, particularly supported in some part by teachers unions and other groups, not, to not even try to find out what the learning loss situation is, to say that would be unfair, that's, you know, punishing kids who are from, you know, lower income households, when in fact, those are the kids who suffered the most during school closures and who most need intervention and help now. So I think there is a, a continue. I'm a public school parent myself. My kids have been in D.C. public school since kindergarten. They're in high school now. I notice among my fellow parents, many of us were fairly organized as small groups over the past year. There's still a lot of suspicion about the system, as we like to call it, not just our, our central public school office and its regulations and its handling of current COVID protocols, for example, but the teachers unions and the, the sort of Department of Education and federal level rhetoric that's come out of the Biden administration on some of these issues. And again, I'm in a largely Democratic city. So this is not just conservatives in Loudoun County, you know, organizing against critical race theory. So I think there's still a lot of watchfulness, not quite as much zeal and taking literally taking to the streets to protest because kids are back in school. But there's a sense that this could still be tenuous. Yeah, I mean, I, I, Naomi, I think you're raising a good point. I think it's less, but I think it's still the concern is still pretty intense. Like I was one of those parents that was concerned in my own home district. And I ran for school board. And I won. And even though the fervor is less, there's still a lot of, whether it's mask mandates, critical race theory, all of these local issues. So what do you think the tools are that parents are going to be utilizing to have their voices be heard? Everyone should be like you, Ian. People should run for these offices. People who are concerned about their kids' education should run for school board and should get involved in other ways if they can't be on the school board in their local school systems. It's really, really important as parents. I think. Part of the reason we got to this point of frustration, and I say this of myself too, is that it's easy to outsource a lot of this stuff when things are going smoothly. But when disaster strikes in the form of a pandemic or something else, that's when you realize that maybe we haven't been engaged enough as parents. So yes, definitely run for school board. Show up at meetings. Those meetings are really important. And of late, we've seen very heated school board meetings, right, where parents get up and really want to have their say about the curriculum and those issues in particular. But Parents should regularly commit to going to those and to hold accountable the people who they've chosen to represent the school's interests. So I think that's one step. Another step is to really keep, you know, keep a close watch on, on the people who run your kids' schools in the sense of ask a lot of questions. If your kid brings a paper home with an assignment that strikes you as ideologically motivated, raise that issue, you know, in, in a polite, respectful way. Say, I'm concerned. Could you explain this a little more to me? What, what is the reasoning behind this assignment? We have to be engaged as parents. We can't just yell and scream and stomp our feet. So I, I totally applaud you for running for school board. That's actually one of the key things we need to do more as parents. A lot of the people who run our teachers unions and some of our federal department agencies, they're not even themselves parents. So they're, they're coming at this as technocratic elite experts in their fields. But there's, you know, this is one of those areas where you kind of want to have people who have skin in the game, right? People who are raising children and who are using these systems themselves and can criticize them as people who know what they're talking about. I was interested in the part of the piece where you sort of broke down the demographics of parents in the United States now and talked about how in some ways they're kind of, they're more of a minority now or more of a vocal minority too, but but that there's this whole kind of child freeness that has taken over in a lot of cities that a lot of cities are sort of made for people who don't have young children, certainly not children in schools. 
And so how is that influencing the landscape? Do you think that that will pull more of these parents together, that they have this thing in common that now not everybody has anymore? Or does it make their voice sort of more muted because there are all these other single childless technocrats who are running things? <laughs> the issue of cities is really interesting. And I, I had I looked into the demographics and, and number of parents and stuff. When I started to write this piece, I didn't know what those numbers were. And, you know, we have declining birth rates. We have particularly in cities, big cities, they're now designed and focused on in terms of housing and costs for people who are single or coupled, but without young children. That's reflected in the way that those systems work. These also tend to be the places that are more blue state voters. They tend to be dominated if it's a public education system by very powerful teachers unions. And so that combination means that parents' voices will already be way down the list of priorities for local and state leaders. They just don't have the clout as a political or a financial interest for those politicians. And you saw, again, you saw this play out. Parents were furious in these cities when their kids couldn't go to school. And the politicians sort of shrugged and they didn't seem to be all that concerned about it. They did, however, answer to their teachers' unions because the teachers' unions fill their coffers for re-election. And so it sounds very cynical to say, but parents haven't really organized in that way to influence elections in terms of money spent. But where they do, I think, have a voice is, you know, reaching out. Me- media outlets were, were fairly good about listening for the first time to those parents' concerns. I mean, the New York Times had several good pieces. New York Magazine had many. And then parents just showing up and kind of causing a ruckus at these meetings gained local and broader attention for these issues. Yeah. yeah. We, we used to have this term called dinks. Do you remember that? Dinks and sinks, double income, no kids. No kids, yes. Um, But there are, our colleague, Naomi and I, our colleague, Max Eden, actually published a piece a couple days ago about the growing number of states, I think it's like seven or eight, that have now passed what they're calling academic transparency laws to help parents. Basically, these laws are structured in such a way that the teachers literally have to publish their curricula before they teach it, and they have to teach what they post. And because parents are trying to get some kind of insight into what is actually being taught, because they're kind of discovering, just as like you just said, I mean, now that I'm a school board member, people are coming to me and saying, do you know that my kid is being called a certain name or pronoun in school, but I have no idea that that's happening? And Mm -hmm. so this whole idea of transparency is like blowing people's minds of, of what's happening to their kids. Well, it's it's funny you say that because that push is obviously successful because it's completely needling the people in power. It's driving them bonkers. And and I, I think I sent to you, Naomi, something I saw come across the transom just the other day when the big gubernatorial race in Virginia, which, of course, Loudoun County is this is this really interesting area where a lot of both of these debates about school closures and critical race theory are really playing out at the local level. So there was this debate. Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate, said something kind of alarming when he was asked a question about just those sorts of issues. And he says, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach kids. I'm like, you're going to regret that quote. Like, I mean, that was immediately seized on as, are you kidding? It's precisely what parents should be concerned about. And honestly, even people who aren't parents should be concerned about what public schools are teaching the next generation of Americans about who they are, about our past, about opportunities, because they're the people who will be running things in 10, 20, 30 years. So I think everybody has an investment in making sure that that transparency really does spread across the country, because that's, again, it's a neutral thing to say, we just want to know what you're teaching and why. Taxpayer money funds these schools. We have a right to know what they're teaching. You think that there's, it's, it's interesting when sort of, I was thinking the comparison between 
the parents and the and the teachers union. So obviously the teachers union is spending enormous amounts of money. Is there potential for like a parent lobbying group out there that will lobby for? I mean, you know, obviously not all these interests are the same, but maybe some combination of these transparency laws that, you know, require school curriculum to be released, but also, as you mentioned, Ian, like this insanity of the, you know, secret pronouns that kids get called at school and the the kind of conspiracy, and I'm not exaggerating here, of all the staff members who are going to not tell the parents what the kid is doing in school. Imagine a parent-teacher conference. Oh and you literally, you literally, <laughs> like, wait, can I, can, no, I can't call it, wait, I, you know, like, it's unbelievable. Anyway. But, but so, you know, do you think that there's like some kind of consensus that could be formed here among these parents, at least as far as the, the transparency goes? And that that could be, I don't know that we're ever going to find a group as powerful as the teachers union in this country, but in terms of finding something politically that would actually make the, you know, the school boards and the city council stand up. I hope so, because we, we've seen seeds of this starting during the pandemic. K through 12, and I would Posited off as K through 12 parents in particular, right? K through 12 public edu- public school parents are, even, are, are one group of that. They're also private school parents. But I think all K through 12 parents can agree on certain principles about how school systems, whether they're public or private, should respond to the needs of parents. I hope that we can see some of these local organizations. There have been quite a few in the in the uh, Virginia area that have popped up. There have been little groups that have successfully lobbied state legislatures for transparency laws about CRT, for example, and things like that. Organizing nationally is tough, though, right? Because we're parents for life, but we're really only school-age parents for a certain discrete number of years. And not to be cynical, but towards the end of that, we all become competitive when our kids are all applying to get into college, right? This is one of the other sort of well, not just not like just it. that you become competitive, but also that you become much more reluctant to annoy the schools. Bingo. I mean, <laughs> When it, when it comes time to get your kids into college, you know, are you really going to be needling the high school principal and guidance counselor about what they're doing and not doing, knowing how much power they have over those kinds of outcomes? So, so yeah, this is really, you should be targeting in like the kindergarten, second grade, fourth grade. Parents. Tenth grade, maybe. Then, right? yes. I'm optimistic because I never, if you'd asked me two years ago, if, if even myself as a parent would get as riled up and as activist as I became over the last 18 months, I would have laughed. But there is something about the way these systems often bullied parents. And I do use that word deliberately because there were times when I would try to be in touch with my kids, teachers or administrators, and they literally would say, I don't have to talk to you. Thinking, how did we get to a point where you don't have to talk to me? I'm a parent. My kid, you serve my kid. It's not the other way around. But if you look at the way financially these systems are structured, the power of the unions, the the power of particularly blue state led school systems. It's true, actually. They don't have to talk to someone like me because I don't have any power. So I hope that parents can discreetly, particularly in systems where union, to balance out the teacher's union power, I hope that that continues. Yeah, the virtual thing, I think, has made it worse, too, because, you know, suddenly a lot of places weren't even having these in-person meetings and they could just mute parents like or not have. Well, I've been muted. (laughs) Or, you know, not have any of these kind of in-person interactions where you could really make clear the intensity of your anger. I mean, I wonder, do you think the real power that parents do have is the power of their feet? I mean, you cite that, that parents, a lot more parents are choosing to homeschool. There's a dramatic rise in enrollment in public charter schools and reductions in traditional public school enrollment. How does that fit into the mix? Because at some point you can fight, 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 but then you just leave. 
This is such an important point. And actually, it's the one thing that so far I've seen kind of scare the teachers unions folks, right? Because every kid that leaves the public school system for charter, for homeschooling, for some alternative outside of the traditional public education system takes money out of that system. And that's a teacher's job eventually. So like in DC, enrollments are down. And a lot of these big cities, a lot of kids just disappeared out of the system last year and never came back. That costs teachers their jobs. Now, the union doesn't want to say that out loud because the people who pay their very inflated salaries would probably be very annoyed to hear that they might lose their jobs after all this lobbying to keep schools closed. But the charter school movement and the homeschool movement in particular have just gotten a massive injection of parents and families really eager to figure out if this is something they can do for their families. And I think that's wonderful. I think people who've been in charter and homeschool advocacy for decades should really see, and I know they are, seizing on this opportunity to pass legislation that really makes this a genuine possibility for families from all economic backgrounds, not you know to get rid of some of these layers of bureaucracy that parents face when they're trying to homeschool in particular. I think it's great. That's a really hopeful thing that's come out of this kind of terribly dark period of public education over the last year and a half. Yeah. And I know we focused mostly on K-12 in this edu- in, in this conversation, but you also talk about crime yeah. in your piece. And it's similar kind of phenomena that parents are starting to realize, wait a minute, all these ideas around defund the police, other things, they're, the backlash is being borne by people in communities that have now skyrocketing crime rates. Yes. It's been, I think, I hope a very eye-opening reality for particularly the liberal white parents who who live in safe suburbs with their Black Lives Matter signs on their lawns to read pieces where families who live in high crime neighborhoods are saying, don't defund the police. We need the police. We want them better trained and we have some issues with this, that and the other, but don't take them away because our safety is at risk when you do. And this this conundrum that that parents face when they want to take their kid to the playground, but there are a lot of drug addicts and sort of vagrants hanging out who are threatening to their children. And they say, but I'm a good liberal. I want to help these people. The reality of keeping their children safe is clashing with their kind of vague sense of do-gooderism. And the thing that's going to win is safety in that particular equation. You mean the black square on their Instagram page is not going to improve? (laughs) Hey, that saves lives, Ian. (laughs) It's true. I mean, I think that drug use is probably the classic example where a lot of adults think, oh, what what harm is it doing to me that this guy is, you know, shooting up on the corner or whatever? I just, you know, walk on by. But suddenly when your children have to walk by him every day on the way to school, you know, you start getting a little bit more concerned about these kinds of activities. It's going to be sort of this interesting contest to see whether those families just all leave, you know, as happened in places like New York for decades. Once you had children, it was head for the suburbs if you could afford to do that or whether the the cities and the politicians in the cities are going to recognize how much they need those families for their tax base, among other things, and try to figure out a way to to make the crime scene better and also to make schools better so that families are willing to stay. Yeah. And I think we should cite, I mean, you started to allude to some of these new organizations that are popping up. So for our listeners, you know, there are groups like Parents Defending Education, Parents United, Fair for All. You know, these are all institutions that are coming up to try and empower parents so that they know how to, for example, use FOIA rules, you know, Freedom of Information Act, because a lot of parents are left with no other option but to like try to foil their local school districts to get information. You know, one of the most interesting news stories that emerged about school closures and the and the impact that lobbying by teachers unions on the CDC in particular 
had on keeping, you know, really restrictive mandates that had nothing to do with the science were came out of a parents group FOIA requests in some of these areas. They had requested FOIA documents showing communications between the Biden administration and the teachers unions. And what was revealed was really not pretty. Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC, totally pandering to the to the demands, unscientific demands of the teachers union. And people were furious and parents were livid because these were parents of children who had not had an education in person for more than a year. And they were watching this, the most powerful Democratic lobbying group in the nation, which had largely funded a huge part of Biden, the Biden campaign, just getting everything they asked for. And there were no parents at the table there. It'd be one thing if if the CDC was also dealing with some sort of parent group and asking them their thoughts, because they're all stakeholders. Parents are the stakeholders who get left out of those debates all the time. Yeah. I feel like a lot of school boards now have started like having student representatives, but, but I don't see any parent rep. Like, oh, parents are so querulous now. <laughs> We're so much I, trouble. <laughs> I think it was the Boston school board. I was watching some of those meetings because they were having a big debate about the Boston Latin and the exam schools, or maybe it was San Francisco. They had a, they had a student representative who just went on at length. And I was like, wait, aren't there supposed to be other people, other stakeholders here? But no, we, we want the voice of the youth. But <laughs> we'll talk, well, in San Diego, in order to become an anti-racist school district, they made a decision to eliminate the need to hand in homework on time for all 120,000 students. Their student rep on the San Diego school board was like, this is great. <laughs> what a wonderful idea. We've taken over the asylum. <laughs> yeah, that's a big surprise. Imagine. Imagine. <laughs> All right. Well, Christine, thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed this conversation. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get this podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcast. So with that, I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Christine. Thank you. 